Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year's Eve, I guess. Um, If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant Armstrong. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, If you are new or just checking the church out, I want to give you a special welcome. We hope that you will feel quickly at home here at Glen Ellen Bible Church. Uh, We have a welcome table out in the lobby there. We would love to meet you, connect with you. Um, We've got a gift for you. It's a book just telling you a little bit about who we are so you can get to know us a little bit easier. But we would, uh, most importantly, like to get to know who you are. Um, So I don't know about you guys, but I was sitting down here seeing Gloria and Excelsius Deo. I don't don't even know if I said that right. And I was like, I have no idea what that that means. Um, And so I looked it up on my phone. I don't know if you guys, but you don't even have to admit that you don't know what it means. I'll just tell you. Uh, it means glory be to God on high. So um, that's just a free one. You guys get to take that. If that's the only thing you remember this morning, there you go. Put it in your pocket for next year at Christmas time. Well, today is the final day for us celebrating Advent. It is closing our re- reflections on the birth of Christ and the impact that's made on the world. On January 14th, we'll start a new series titled Religion versus Jesus. And if you're new at Glen Ellen Bible Church, this is a great series to join us for. We'll be looking at the ways that Jesus challenges religious efforts. Last night, I was up a little late, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but kids do not care about how late you stay up. There is, in fact, an inverse relationship between when you go to bed and when your kids get up. The later you stay up, the earlier your kids are going to wake up. Uh, This is a law of the universe, just like gravity. There's no point in fighting it. Um, So it led me to think, is anyone making New Year's resolutions? Because I think mine's going to be, don't stay up late anymore. Well, for many of us, the new year is a time where we have these kind of grand expectations for who we'll become over the next 365 days. Now, it's not a bad idea at all to choose some kind of achievable habit to add to your life. And as we look towards the year to come, there's often a feeling of lightheartedness, optimism, and enthusiasm. Unfortunately, that sentiment, it can quickly fade. The sentiment can quickly fade as we start to look around us at the news and see all that's going on. In fact, Thursday morning before I came into work, I was scrolling through email um, and it was bullet point after bullet point after bullet point of conflicts all around the world. All over the place, tensions are high. It was a vivid reminder that holiday sentiment, it's unable to alter or even address global conflict, human dysfunction. Our reality seems to be a far cry from the Christmas hymns we're singing, peace on earth and goodwill to men. The fighting, it's not just reserved for global superpowers. If we're willing, we can observe conflict and brokenness and injustice all around us in our own community. We may even be experiencing some of this in our own lives. Now, I said last week when I was at Poplar Creek, uh, but the rates of anxiety and depression in our community, they tell me that we are hyper aware that something's broken. What we're experiencing is not good. 
the world both deep or near and far is deeply broken. Now you might be thinking at this moment, geez, who dropped the turd in this guy's punch bowl? Um, but before I get too deep into our conversation, I just want to ask you to hang with me till the end. Because if you're like me, I realize kicking off the morning with this kind of doom and gloom story isn't terribly inviting. But I'm doing this with a purpose today. Because I also want you to leave filled with a sense of hope, a sense of optimism. But my desire is to go beyond, to move past the fickle nature of sentiments and offer a type of substantive hope, a hope that is anchored in something real, a reminder that peace is truly on the horizon. We can confidently believe that. But for us to get there, we've got to work through and acknowledge some hard realities that we face. Depending on your worldview, you might believe that the arc of humanity is moving up and to the right. Generally, the idea is that greater amounts of technology, greater amounts of education, they'll lead to less conflict and a better human existence. And I would agree with you that technology has certainly helped raise the standard of living around the globe. But it's also made us far more aware of how unjust the world really can be. We can see in almost real time tragedies that unfold all over the place. And while this might confront our modern sensibilities, the truth is that every society since the beginning of human existence has experienced conflict, fighting, people groups, violating one another's efforts to survive and to flourish. Beautifully, humanity possesses this kind of resilience that refuses to give in to the darkness we seem drawn like a moth to a flame towards optimism that something greater must be available. Now, whether or not you believe in the accuracy or the authority of the Bible, I've grown to understand the unique way that it confirms the messiness and the pain of the human experience. Instead of ignoring hardship, the Bible validates the reality of your hardships. I used to believe that the Bible presented this glass-half-full kind of optimism, a whitewashed view of just be happy. But I was wrong on that. That's not all the Bible represents. The Bible actually affirms that something is off. Your inner sense that this isn't how we're meant to exist is correct. Abuse, injustice, pain, suffering, those are all problematic things that rob us of a meaningful life. Well, thankfully, God's word to us doesn't stop by simply acknowledging pain and messiness. The Bible uniquely explains pain's existence. It invites us to experience something so much more because God promises access to a life where broken things are made beautiful, or as one of my favorite songs puts it, he turns graves into gardens. God promises humanity that he'll fix what's broken. He'll make right what is wrong. And as we observe God continue to make right what's wrong in the world, we can cling to a hope and be filled with peace. This morning, we have the opportunity to watch God use a spokesperson to remind his people, both ancient and born, the reason that we celebrate Advent season, there was a different individual who was gaining some attention. His name was Isaiah. 
his community considered him a type of truth teller. They respected him because he possessed a unique wisdom and authority. And his role in the community was to tell people what was most true about the world and the best ways that they could live in it. Now, I'm no Isaiah, but the role he played in his community is not that different than what a pastor would do preaching at a church on Sunday. And in some ways, that world wasn't different than ours because his, his friends and neighbors, their lives were not going as they'd planned. They lif- lived under a feeling of hopelessness. They'd been chosen by God to be a special people. God promised to care for them and to protect them. He promised to grow them from this small group of nomadic herdsmen into a, uh, a group, a nation that would be known around the world. Their current reality, though, it didn't seem to match up to those promises. Instead, there was a national crisis unfolding. The government leaders, they're facing the unenviable decision, the unenviable experience of a military invasion from one side or destruction from neighbors on the other side. So with only bad and worse options, the leaders decided that their best chance for survival would be to seek out an ally from an outside kingdom to find protection offered by another power. Now, long story short, that was the wrong choice. And I'm sure you have been in a position where you're unsure what to do. You're facing this lose-lose outcome. And sometimes it's no fault of your own. We're stuck. In those moments especially, we know that the world is not as it should be. If you doubt that, all you have to do is look around you can see pain and suffering experienced. For many, the reality has begged the question, is this all there is? Shouldn't there be more to life than this? What could we do to change this reality? Now, there are a whole host of ways that we address this kind of pain. Sometimes with substances or shopping, maybe working, consuming more, maybe we just turn on the TV try to pretend that nothing is happening. If you're like me, on my very best days, your decision is to maybe gather some action steps to change things. You can make a plan. Something like, oh, if there's people living in poverty, I could give money to the under-resourced. Laws, they seem to be oppressing people. Well, I could vote for specific individuals and different policies. My purchases are supporting a company that takes advantage of folks. Well, I could change my spending habits to better align with my values. You see, the possibilities, they go on and on. But if we're honest, you and I both know that these feel a little bit trite. Now, they're fine responses. They're good, but they're not going to change the world, are they? They're not going to get the job done. And just like the Israelites, they thought they exhausted all their options working through, so they settled on what seemed best. These options, they don't inspire much confidence in us. Isaiah and his community, they were left questioning God. He promised them care and protection. He told them that he would lead them into a land that allowed them to grow and to flourish. He was, was he unable to make good on his promises? You see, in a world where your future was impossible to separate from the strength of your God, these people were left feeling hopeless and full of despair. 
Now, to pause just real briefly in this, the history of the Israelite people, it tells us that God's promises for protection and flourishing, that what, uh, how he would care for the Israelite people, what he expected in return was that they would live in a certain way, that they would live up to a set of standards. And up to this point in history, the Israelites have failed to do so. So on a cosmic scale, God would have been justified in saying something like, hey, this is your fault. You made your bed. And there's a lot that we could unpack with that, but I'm intrigued that instead of God responding in blame, he chooses to share a message of comfort. He promises that he'll send a rescuer to save them, and their future, it will be marked by a permanent peace. Here's exactly what Isaiah says to his community. Isaiah 9, 6 reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What Isaiah knows is their story goes beyond what they can see. The people, they've lost their bearings. They're starting to panic, and these words were intended to serve as a guide for their future. Somebody would come to rescue them. They could confirm that that person, who that person was, that he was the Savior because of both what he did and what he affected in the world around him. The last few weeks, we have looked at these titles given to the rescuer, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Our Christmas services, they pointed to Jesus being the one who was sent to rescue. The titles and their meanings, they're intentional because they describe the character of this rescuer and the outcome of his actions. But literarily, this final title, Prince of Peace, is considered the most important. Practically, the implications of such a title demand significant action and some kind of intervention. See, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the title Prince of Peace would have carried this very obvious meaning of a divine military figure, one who would bring permanent peace by leveraging his power and his strength to establish justice. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, and it might seem like a stretch to us to label Prince of Peace as a military figure. Now, because of our modern concepts of peace, they're a little bit different than what was thought of in the ancient Near East. Right? We most often think of peace as tranquility or relaxing by the beach, maybe even the absence of violence. That is the version we would most often recognize by the hippies, right? the peace sign protesting the Vietnam War. But in the ancient Near East, peace didn't exclude tranquility. It simply was more of an outcome of the function of peace. You see, to make peace was to make something complete or whole, to fix what was broken. So for a people facing oppression and injustice, the offer of peace, it was a, a validation of their experiences. Things weren't going like they were supposed to. They needed somebody to come and to make things right. Within this concept, peace was a response to injustice. You see, an offense, it demands a resolution. Modern figures like Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, Without justice, there can be no peace. For Israel, they primarily understood this title, Prince of Peace, as a promise for justice in their lives. 
Now, because of our position in history, we can see that this was totally unprecedented. It was a revolutionary way to deal with things. That God intends to deliver on these promises in a unique fashion. To this day, there's been nothing else like it. It stands apart from all other approaches because the approach is so unique. The methods that God employs to bring peace, to establish justice, they can break the boxes that we typically use to categorize the world and how things work. Throughout scripture, we see God represented as strong, powerful, but we also see Jesus stand up to injustice, flip over tables, make some bold claims. In Psalm 144, God says he trains a king's hands for war. But we also have a perspective the original audience didn't have. While they were looking forward, we're able to look both backward and forward. See, the church is built on the belief that Jesus was this sent Messiah. Jesus would bring about peace for humanity. So as we think about Jesus representing love, which is true, we also see that Jesus isn't a pushover. He's not ignorant of suffering. He doesn't tell you to simply ignore or to overlook the ways that you've been wronged. Instead, Jesus actually promises that he'll make up for the offenses and deal fairly with the ugliness that we've cultivated, the ugliness that we've experienced. You may have heard this phrase, Jesus didn't die for your mistakes. As painful as it may be, we have to admit, admit that we've wronged one another. And I'll be honest, it's difficult for me to stand up here and say this to you to admit it, but I know there are people in this room that I've sinned against, that I've wronged. Those wrongs and those sins, they're destructive to relationship and they prevent things from working as God intended. That is what we need Jesus to deal with. Nothing would get dealt with if Jesus' only response was, hey, just pretend like it didn't happen. Instead, we see God lean into this ugliness. He deals with it directly. Now, international courts, modern day, they debate this legality or the concept of amnesty, meaning the overlooking of an offense, right? It's the primary desire of something like amnesty is to facilitate peace. But human rights lawyers, they often respond to this concept by arguing that the approach undermines both the authority of leadership as well as minimizes the pain and the suffering. More specifically, the consequences get piled onto the victim and not the abuser. Amnesty is not what God's offering. God promises that justice will be handed out for the ways that we've been wronged. Now, these two ideas, judgment and love, they don't seem to work well together. We have this reasonable instinct to remove judgment from God's character. We can't quite imagine how God could express judgment in a way that was also loving. So we soften it. We remove the judgment component. And I, I think it's an understandable impulse, honestly, but it also represents a misunderstanding of God. You see, what's so significant, what was so unique about the methodology that God chose, it's, it's honestly hard to comprehend in some ways because God is gracious in such a way that he would extend judgment for the ways that I've been victimized, but he would also take on the punishment that I should receive for inflicting unjust suffering. 
and he would also do that for the people who have hurt me. You see, God is willing to not only extend judgment, but to stand in the place of the abuser and receive the punishment that's deserved. It's easy to categorize a Christian faith as kind of lofty idealism or uh, a set of behaviors that we're supposed to live by. But really, it, it misses the point. The point is that God saw the mess we had made of the world, the mess we had made of our lives, and he stepped into the mess and declared that he would bring justice, including punishment for all the wrongs of history, and he would bear the burden of those punishments in our place so that we can be in right relationship with one another and with him. Now, I said this was some revolutionary stuff, and I, I would think of this kind of like a judge who convicts the old widow for not paying her taxes, and he issues the most significant punishment and fines that he could on the woman. But after the trial, he steps down from the bench, and he pulls out his checkbook, and he pays the fine in full. Now, I, I, I know it's more than that. Honestly, I struggle to come up with a concept that could represent this well. You see, we can never undo all the wrongs that we've done on our own. There's no way that we could accomplish that. But Jesus, he made a way. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brought wholeness to humanity by using his strength to endure the punishment that justice demands. I also would like to challenge us just a little bit. Many of us struggle to believe that God really would punish people. We're afraid that the representation of him involving war or judgment ignores the description of his character in the New Testament, one that is often marked by love. But I would suggest that a God who doesn't deal with injustice, who does not punish, ignores the dignity of the victim. Now, I'm not saying that I can perfectly understand the coexistence of these two traits, but I can't deny the way that so many around the world, those who really are victims, find a tangible hope in knowing that God will make right the ways that they've been wronged, that judgment will be handed down. Now, I think the uh, hardest part about road trips, this feels like a hard turn, but you'll catch on. The hardest part about road trips for me, it's the waiting, right? What's the infamous question every kid has ever asked their parent when they're driving across the country? Yeah, are we there yet? We just want to arrive at that destination. Uh, my boys have taken to wanting the GPS up on the screen, no matter where we're going, it could be down the street. They need the GPS up on the screen because they wanna know how many minutes are left before we get there. They need the exact directions but before GPS, most of us remember that we're left in this kind of weird limbo state. We knew we'd eventually get there. We just had to wait on it. And waiting can seem unbearable at times. You know this is true, especially if you have to use the restroom. Well, waiting, you know, it can also be one of the more challenging aspects of Christianity. You see, there's this promise, we hear about these promises, that someday things will be better, but not fully today. But today has to be part of the waiting. Just like when we're driving and the change of landscape begins to tell us that we're getting close, we can see elements of this peace 
of the destination where the world is heading around us. There's evidence that someday something better, some kind of peace is on our horizon. We are on the way. When Isaiah spoke these words, he was looking forward. As we read them and are alternating between looking backwards and forwards, it puts us in this unique position to try and understand the words. These people, they were anticipating fulfillment of the same promises and Isaiah's vision of a future. It wasn't only for his community. The rescuer Isaiah is describing, it's also for us. This divine hero, he truly has come. Isaiah, he could see ahead further than his peers were able. He reminds them not to give up trusting God because God is at work. A Messiah is on the way. The early church and Christians today believe that these words, they were describing Jesus. And our task is to consider, what might they mean for us? Um, do any of you do jigsaw puzzles over Christmas? I don't know if that's a family tradition you had. We did. I don't know why it was only for Christmas time. But growing up, we'd leave this impossibly difficult puzzle on the card table for the whole month of December. Then we would slowly work on it in the evenings. And I can't remember for sure, but I don't think we ever finished these puzzles, um, mostly because they were really hard. It was like 4,000 pieces, and it was a picture of a blizzard in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, who does puzzles like that? I don't know how you'd possibly put it together. If your brain works that way, I think there's something wrong with you. That's not <laughs> normal. But what's the biggest fear when you're doing these kinds of puzzles? It's that after you spend all this time, all this energy, trying to put all the pieces there, you'll get to the end, and you're going to be missing a piece or two. And this really bothered me as a kid. In fact, I thought about it so much that I came up with a business plan to address the problem of a lost puzzle piece. <laughs> now, uh, the technology wasn't there to solve this problem, and I was 13. So it didn't take off. But <laughs> my point is, incomplete puzzles, partially represented photos, things that aren't finished, they tend to feel broken to us. We don't easily sit in those feelings we know something's off and we want to fix it. That or we ignore it, try to tell ourselves everything's fine. But deep down, we know something is missing. Now, right now, you might be asking, is he still talking about the puzzle world or what's going on? Uh, yes and no. Puzzle is a metaphor for our life. It's a metaphor for the human experience. The majority of the world, they share this sense, even in their day-to-day, -day, that something it isn't quite right. Now, we might disagree about what the not quite right is, but I don't think there'd be fighting in your family or in your company or in our country or around the world if everything was exactly how it was supposed to be. Isaiah's community facing these same challenges was invited not to give into despair because one day they would be rescued. While their experience is help for, uh, helpful for us, we're in a bit of a different position. You see, the Christian faith is built upon the belief that Jesus, is, Jesus of Nazareth is that rescuer Isaiah was speaking of. He's more loving than people wanted to see, and he is far more just than our modern sensibilities desire. Loving and judgment, they might appear a paradox, but they, and they are for me to try to live them out honestly, but I would suggest that Jesus' life 
is actually proof that these apparently contradictory ideas can coexist, but only within one who is God. Now we can confirm that Jesus fulfilled this role of rescuer. We could consider his life against the words of Isaiah predicted 700 years before uh, Jesus' birth. And this confirmation should lead us to trust what Jesus says because his instructions are intended to lead, lead us into this eternal state of wholeness. Wrongs righted, justice extended, judgments completed, the world as it truly should be. For both that original audience and us today, God intends to comfort and to encourage. This is not a God who backs away from your questions. Questions like, how will I know if God's real? Is he real? This is not a good God that denies your pain or your suffering. He doesn't deny that evil and injustice exist in our world. He won't simply pretend like it never existed. He acknowledges the pain caused. He issues judgment and he takes on the weight of punishment for those who are willing to accept the substitution of himself for the offender. He doesn't simply wipe it away and pretend like it doesn't exist. He doesn't tell you to just get over it. He doesn't look the other way and pretend it never happened. Instead, he embraces it head on. He leans in. He agrees with you. This place, it is messed up. Things are going down the drain but he's come to address those problems. You see, Jesus, he is what is missing. He's the puzzle piece that's needed. He will fill the voids. He will make things complete. The opportunity that we have daily is to give this brokenness, this incompleteness to Jesus. Ask him to do what only he can do. And as we trust him to do that, and we follow his directions for how to participate in that wholeness, we surprisingly begin to experience a peace that passes understanding. We could lose a loved one and still feel hope. We can watch evil apparently succeed, but know that it's fleeting, it's just temporary. We can suffer and know that one day justice will be served. This is why Jesus can say things like, drinking the water he offers, after you do it, you won't be thirsty. When we take what he offers, the forgiveness of our sins and salvation, when we drop the need to prove ourselves to fill the gaps or to be better than our neighbors to fill the gaps, that thirst you feel, it's satisfied. All the cars and the vacations and the promotions, the things that never seem to fully bring you rest, Jesus wants to satisfy. Jesus can quench that thirst. He is what you've been missing. So when you look around and you see brokenness, and when you're tempted to feel hopeless or full of despair, don't end there. Let's remind ourselves that the story, it's bigger than what we see. Our story, as individuals, it's important, but there is far more going on in this bigger plot line, and in the end, all of these threads will be woven together with a future promise, a promise that there is hope and that peace it will be eternal. And while we can't perfectly see the space between today and that day, by trusting in Christ, we begin to experience aspects of that ultimate peace that one day we'll get to live out for all eternity. Amen? Let's pray.
Dear Jesus, I find myself grateful that you don't deny the brokenness that we've experienced, the pain that we've experienced, that instead you promise you'll step into those places, you'll be with us in those places. The validation you offer by acknowledging the realness of our pain, as well as the invitation to let you feel those things, God. Jesus, I pray that we would accept the space that you want to stand in for punishment for us, that we would allow you to take that on, that we would receive your gift of salvation and free grace. Jesus, when we feel hopeless and full of despair, help us to look to you knowing that one day there will be peace, that wrongs will be righted, and we'll get to experience that together for the rest of eternity. We pray these things in your name. Amen.